you and I are told the story of the way in which Jesus Christ will go about calming the storm, calming the waves and the wind. I want you to see your life here and the way in which God is involved in the trials and the challenges that you yourself face on a daily basis. Because now the physician Luke in this 8th chapter pens these thoughts beginning with verse 22. That one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out and as they sailed he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commends even winds and water? And they obey him. So in this short, short section, you have powerful, powerful teachings from Luke that start unfolding and relate to relate to life today, don't they? Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Father, you use the storms throughout the scriptures to speak to our hearts. David, David would cry out, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. You would recall for us Job's words. He would crush me with a storm. And so, Father, for those that for some reason over the course of their years have seen storm clouds come and go, disruptions, the path that you've laid out for them, what I'm praying is that we'll be able to glean insight here from your word as to the way in which this relates practically to modern-day living. So again, it's our prayer that you warm these hearts of ours. Engage these minds of ours. Shape these wills of us. For again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. We pray this again now in Jesus' name.
Look at the scene which appears on the screen in front of you. This painting is the classic painting of this passage that we're examining this morning. It's painted by Rembrandt. It was entitled, Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. Let the whole scene begin to capture your attention with detail. It's nighttime. Clouds are forming. Notice what's around that boat. It's waves. Large waves that are overwhelming the boat. The ship is tilted to the side. It's not erect. Notice where the disciples are positioned. They're together. It's as if they're clinging to one another. They are feeling overwhelmed, which is astounding because these are fishermen. They know that sea. And if you have microscopic vision, you would be able to detect that there is Jesus positioned, sleeping, stern of the boat. What grips our attention, though, is that the title of this painting was not was not disciples in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. The title of this painting was Christ in the Storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's as if the painter wanted us to understand here that Jesus has not abandoned his disciples, nor is Jesus positioned himself to be exempt from storms. But he placed himself right in the midst of it all in the presence of his disciples. This is our critical question series, and we're going to be looking for them in this passage. In verse 22 through verse 24, we're going to be talking about the quest of faith during trials. And then at the very end, we're going to be considering the questions of faith after trials. But we're going to start now with this heading, The Quest of Faith During Trials, as you can see it in your outlines from our worship folders. And what I want to do with you now is to draw out four significant quests of faith that I think emerge from this passage and relate to our our everyday personal experience. First is found in verse 22. Let's read it first and then draw out this faith question. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. Pretty straightforward. And so they set out. Number one. 
The challenge here is to strengthen your faith in Christ, no matter where he leads. Now, the reader of the Gospels is already linking ideas and linking stories and linking events. In Matthew chapter 4 and in verse 18, while walking by where? The Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And what stands out in that dramatic scene is that immediately, not subsequently, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now they're on that boat. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them, Immediately, not subsequently, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now what distinguishes these men on this boat is that they have been developing the spiritual discipline of following Jesus. And following Jesus, when Jesus would not necessarily tell them what they would face and when they would face what they would face, there would be times when information would be withheld so that faith would be increased. So now it's evening. As you begin to pull together the various gospel accounts, you would be told by Matthew that this event takes place once Jesus has completed the teachings found in the parables. It's the end of the day, not the beginning of the day. And Christ is sovereignly positioning his disciples who are skilled with the waters at a time when they are physically weary, not physically refreshed. He positions these who are experts with the sea, experienced with Galilee, and they will be put to the test. So now notice with me that it's one day, but it's a very strategic day on God's calendar. He got into a boat with his disciples. It does not simply say the disciples got into the boat. I think that's important. He is with his people. I'm always awed by Joseph's experience with God. Because again and again, you and I are told in the midst of his trials, and the Lord was with Joseph. So they are not being sent out into these waters 
without Christ. They are being sent out into the waters with Christ. But notice he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Succinctly and emphatically, so they set out. Notice with me that this is unquestioning obedience. They're not saying to Jesus, well, we're weary, we're tired, you're tired. You have spent the whole day investing in others through your powerful teachings. Couldn't we wait till morning? This is unquestioning obedience. Is that a hallmark of your faith? Notice that Jesus sovereignly positions them now in a setting of expertise. He had he had encountered them initially at the shorelines of Galilee. He's not going to ask them into his carpentry shop where they can exhibit their lack of skill. He's going to position them on the Sea of Galilee where supposedly they are at, they're at in a setting where they are at the peak of their capacities and abilities, experience. But notice further with me that he had said, let us go across to the other side. He's got a destination in mind for his people. And notice what he does not give us. He issues no warnings. No advance notice, does not tell his disciples just what to expect. Mark, in his account, also gives us some added perspective. In leaving the multitude in the fourth chapter of the 36th verse, they took him along with them just as he was in the boat And other boats were with him. Which means then that there will be other boats that do not have Jesus positioned with them and will not be privy to insider information with regard to what Christ says or does not say. But they will be beneficiaries of whatever it is that Christ will do which is so often the case in the way in which God works. Now look very carefully at the path that you find yourself on at this juncture in your life journey. Are you willing unquestioningly to follow him wherever he leads? Admiral Thomas Williams was a believer. And in his biography, we're told of a time in which he was commanding his ship across the Atlantic. And the ship brought him in sight of the island of Ascension, which at that time was uninhabited, barely visible on the horizon, but he was seized Admiral Williams was seized by this unaccountable desire and need to steer toward it. 
made no sense to the sailors aboard that ship. But this matter of the soul became increasingly urgent and distressing, as his biographer puts it, to the point where he told his second command, prepared to, quote, put about ship, unquote, and steer in that direction. His second command obeyed. Changing course would greatly delay them, but he obeyed. All eyes were fixed upon it, and soon something was perceived on the shoreline. It's white. It's a rag. It must be a signal. And when they neared the shore, they discovered that 16 men wrecked on the coast days before, suffering hunger, had set up a signal, although most of them were doing so without hope of relief. And in retrospect, the admiral reflected upon the fact that in steering into the very opposite direction of that which he and his crew had initially intended to go, this change of course was nothing more and nothing less than the Spirit of God. The disciples don't challenge Christ with a question, why not wait till morning? They, they don't question him with a, do you have any sense of what the sea might, might produce? But these are men who had left their nets immediately and willingly followed Christ, and now at the point of their own expertise... In the context of their own experience, they know that Sea of Galilee. They set out. And God will do that with you. And he offers his presence. Strengthen your faith in Christ, number one, no matter where he leads. Strengthen your faith in Christ, number two, no matter what he permits. Look at verse 23. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water. And were in danger. Now you look at that very carefully and you begin to ponder the significance of what's occurring here at this point. A windstorm came down on the lake, which is true to the topography of that region. As one writer puts it, sudden violent squalls are not uncommon on Galilee, which lies 600 feet below sea level. Hot, steamy air can start to rise, drawing in a rush of air from the desert that churns the surface of the lake into a violent cauldron. And it erupts unexpectedly. What are we learning from this? As all of a sudden this eruption takes place, 
Why does our Lord sovereignly put them in a situation where the boats are now filling with water and these fishermen are in danger? These are not some tourists of Israel. These aren't men of expertise of that sea. What do the scriptures teach with regard to these kinds of things? Have you ever noticed in the Bible that trials test us at our point of strength? Often you will be tested at your point of strength, not at your point of weakness, your point of strength, so that you will not rely upon yourself, but upon your Lord. Our weaknesses are natural tendencies of us, directional pointers of our souls to look to Christ. But our strengths, so often, they are the very means by which we become entangled with our inability to trust God when the trying times come. These men were experts of the sea. They combined experience, you see and expertise. But trials, they test us at our point of strength. And trials, well, they test us often without warning. You and I are informed that the Sea of Galilee can erupt all at once. And what is initially tranquil becomes a cauldron of violence. Trials test our degree of faith. But now, here's a challenge or two. Did you notice that Jesus did not prevent this from happening? He did not say to the storm, the initial cloud that began to appear, stop, go away. Notice that he does not exempt them from this storm, nor the boats that are also with them out on those waters. He led them into the storm, not around the storm. And so it is with the trials of our lives. He leads us into the storm. not around the storms. I smiled when I came across this from the impact of Hurricane Emily back in 1993 where tourists and residents in North Carolina were spared from the devastation. The hurricane had touched the tip of the U.S. at Cape Hatteras and turned back into the ocean. And the relief was symbolized by a, a spray-painted plywood sign, which I'm told is still there today. Quote, Dear Emily, sorry we missed you. Thanks for the waves anyways. Sincerely, the locals. Unquote. But here's a situation where 
the waves don't miss them. They find them. Have they found you this morning? When Ernest Hemingway was wounded in the First World War, his biographer tells us that doctors picked 237 pieces of shrapnel out of his body. He never forgot the experience. It was not so much the memory of the pain that stayed with him. It was how close he had come to death. He felt that it set him apart from the rest of the human race for the remainder of his life. He recalled the men who shared the experience with him in the convalescent hospital, some of them with faces reconstructed, iridescent, shiny from the work of the plastic surgeons of that day. They too were set apart by their brush with death. They too were suspicious of anyone who had not had the same shattering encounter. Other people seemed trivial, shallow by comparison. He goes on to write, From this Hemingway derived a formula for his novels. Put a good man into a situation where he comes face to face with death in the arena, fighting a bow or in combat. Then you will see him in his truest and his deepest dimensions. You will find out who he really is and what he really believes. For the trial will not make or break him. Rather, It will reveal him. Now the trials we face are the means by which our faith is revealed. Trusting. Trusting even when we say to ourselves, you know, God could have. Or maybe you've reached a point in time where you could say God should have spotted that first cloud that began to form long before the waves overcame the boat. But you see, trials have a way of testing us at our point of strength. They don't conceal our faith at that point. They reveal our faith at that point. And so now the challenge for you and the challenge for me is to look very carefully at the way in which God goes about speaking to us in the midst of these trials, challenging us along the way when the tough questions of life have simply got to be answered. Now, there's a third. There's a third quest that emerges out of these verses. It comes out of verse 23 and 24, and we're going to put it like this. That thirdly, strengthen your faith in Christ, no matter how he appears. Did you notice what it was said of Christ at the beginning of verse 23? He fell asleep. Is he disengaged? 
Likewise, you may be saying in the midst of the storms of your life, is our Lord disengaged here? Is he disinterested? Is he indifferent? Is he uncaring? What stands out here is that he is present in the crisis, though he is yet to provide deliverance from the crisis. And they would have to embrace the presence of the Lord before they saw the deliverance from the Lord. Though so often we want both simultaneously, all at once, you see. But what also stands out to us is that our our Lord is serene, calm in the midst of the storm. I don't want a Savior who bites his fingernails, do you? The storm's not sovereign over him. He's sovereign over the storm. And this is stirring us and begins to get us to ask ourselves some questions about this Jesus who leads them out and then sleeps within. He is present in this crisis, though he is yet to respond to this crisis. He is serene in this crisis when others about him are anxious. But there's something more at stake here. Look at verse 24. In verse 24, they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. What grips our attention at this point is that it is not the storm that woke him. It's his disciples. In other words, he sovereignly waits for his disciples to reach out to him before he will respond. Now, he may appear indifferent. He may appear to be disengaged. But what fascinates us is that these disciples have had experience not merely with Galilean Sea, but experience with the Lord of the Galilean Sea, Jesus. And so, shades of the movie of Russell Crowe, Master and Commander, they shout out, Master, Master, We are perishing. What that tells you and tells me at this point is that they have a sense of authority here. They've gone this far with Jesus. They've seen Jesus do things that nobody else could do. Jesus has led them to the point where they have exhausted their experience, their expertise, their own resources, they are no longer at a point where they can call themselves masters of the sea. 
So they turn to the one who is. It's fascinating. Now what you and I have to do then is to begin to ask ourselves the tough questions with regard to when I turn and where I turn and what do I say to the one to whom I turn. In the book, Ordering Your Private World, the writer talks of a close friend who was once an officer aboard a U.S. Navy nuclear submarine. He related an experience that happened while the sub was on duty in the Mediterranean. Ships were passing overhead on the surface. Sub was having to make a large number of violent maneuvers to avoid possible collisions. He writes, my friend was duty officer in charge of giving the commands by which the submarine was positioned at each moment because there was such a sudden and unusual amount of movement. The captain, who had been in his own quarters, suddenly appeared on the bridge asking this question. Is everything all right? Yes, sir, was my friend's reply. The captain took a quick look around and started back out through the hatch to leave the bridge, and as he disappeared, he said, despite it all, it looks all right to me, too. You and I have got to reach a point in time where we're able to look through the lens of the sovereign one. Despite it all, it looks all right to him, too. Therefore, despite it all, it looks all right to me, too. Have you reached that point? A fourth faith quest. Look carefully at the unfolding of the events in verse 24. We're right in the heart of this verse. We're informed, and he awoke, not because of the storm, but because of his disciples' words. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Fourthly, Strengthen your faith in Christ, no matter when he intervenes, whether it be this side or that side of heaven. He rebuked the wind and the raging waves. This is a statement of verbal authority. They were used to hearing the authoritative word of Jesus confront the not-so-okay situations of life. Like that centurion whose servant was dying, and the centurion approaches Jesus and talks about matters of understanding authority in the ranks of the Roman soldiery system. And just say the word. And now here the disciples have realized that Jesus has allowed them to reach a point in time where all they have left are not their oars and not their sails, but Christ's word. 
He rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. There was a calm. If you have been out on the waters, lakes and oceans, sailing, you know this. When the winds finally cease, the waves continue. The winds are the leading indicator, the waves the leg. What is astounding about this is that they occur simultaneously, not subsequently. Winds first and then the waves. But immediately, just the way those disciples responded on the shoreline of Galilee to Jesus, now immediately these these winds and waves respond to the word of Jesus. And there's a calm. The word of the Lord has been spoken. This is the critical questions series. Look then with me at the questions of faith after trials. Follow with me in your insert. We're now going to anchor this ship on verse 25. Notice with me now that there are two significant questions that are going to unfold for us. Questions of faith after trials. The first the question by Christ. Where is your faith? Now this is the same question you and I need to pose to our own hearts. What we need to do is to allow our thought processes to go back over these four faith quests. Where's my faith in the matter of where he leads, number one? Where's my faith in the matter of what he permits, number two? Where's my faith in the matter of how he appears, number three? Where's my faith in the matter of when he intervenes, number four? But now, notice with me that when you have put this faith such that it's anchored in the Word of God, anchored in the Word of Christ, you can draw a line now from verse 25 back to verse 22. Why? Didn't Jesus at the beginning say, let us go across to the other side of the lake? They're going to get to the other side of the lake. He is the agent of creation, you know. Do you trust the word? Verse 
But sometimes questions produce questions. Notice the question about Christ. For when Jesus asked, where is your faith? We don't get a simple response statement. Instead, you and I are informed they were afraid. If they were afraid of the sea, that pales in comparison to now their fear of the Savior. Because now they have learned that the Sovereign One is not the sea, but the Savior. There is one greater than the sea. And so they're afraid and they marvel and saying to one another, Who then is this that he commends even winds and water and they obey him? That's the question about Christ. It is not the why question, why did he put us through this? It's the who question, who then is this? Peter will answer that next week for us. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now Christ's identity and Christ's authority merge together here as you and I are taken back to that visual scene painted by Rembrandt that again appears on the screen in front of you. And look very carefully now at what's happening here. There's a storm. The ship is angled, not erect. The disciples are huddled together, and yet Christ is there on that ship. And they experience his presence, though they have yet to experience his deliverance. But there will be a coming moment when the winds cease. Simultaneously, the waves cease. The calm sets in. And the question then should be asked, Who is this? Not why did he permit this? Peter will eventually answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. As our worship team comes forward, let's look to our Lord in prayer. Praising you. thanking you, seeking you. Our Father, we are valuing, first and foremost, Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, the one who directs us into the storms, not around the storms. And it's our prayer, Father, that in the midst of the storm, will be able to answer the question of who.
and have a settled peace in our hearts. The storm's not in charge. You are. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name. Amen.